Eden. Delighted to serve you this morning by opening the words of Scripture with you. These words are our life. We cannot live on bread, Kelly's, Qdoba, Santapio's alone. We need every word that has been given to us from the mouth of God by the Spirit of God in Scripture. And so we devote ourselves to loving and sitting under the revealed words of God. And we get to do that in a very unique way as a community together. On Jesus' day, week after week after week after week after week after week, we sit under the preached word of God. These words are helpful and beautiful and eternally true. And they get to shape and direct and convict and change and encourage and help us. So that's what we're doing if you've never done this with us before. My name is Matt. I'm one of our pastors, um, and this is part of my role in serving you to feed you from the Word of God on Sundays. We are preaching through the very odd and very wonderful older covenant uh, book of the Bible called the book of Esther, the book of Esther. Just a little recap of where we are at together. Esther was a young teenage Jewish woman living in the pagan city of Susa in the pagan land of Persia, and by God's providence, she somehow became the queen of Persia. And now in a very terrifying turn of events, her people, the Jews, who are scattered throughout the lands of Persia, living in exile, have come under a death sentence. A genocide of her people is about to take place. What we are focusing on together this week is this. What is the nature of Esther's response to this doom for her and her people? Specifically, here's our question. What will this now Persian woman, Persian queen, will she identify with God's people or not? Especially when doing so could come at a very steep cost to herself. What's it going to be, Esther? I need you to feel that tension. That's what we're going to deal with today. I want you to hold that thought. Before we get to Esther, I want to tell you another story, another biography that will help frame this for you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't know if you've ever heard that name before, if you haven't, don't worry about it. Dietrich was this brilliant German theologian and pastor who lived and taught and ministered in Germany during the rise of the Third Reich, Hitler and the Nazis. It was a very complicated, very dangerous, very confusing time to be a Christian pastor who feared God and believed the gospel living in what was happening there. There was this weird, misguided church and state thing going on where many of the clergy and their churches actually gave their full support to Hitler and his movement. But then there was this faithful remnant of pastors, Christians, and churches, Bible-loving, gospel-believing, 
national community that was called the Confessing Church, the Confessing Church. They gave themselves that name and they said, look, we're the ones who are going to confess Christ right now, Christ as supreme, Christ as Lord, Christ as having all authority, Christ's truth as true. If you were living there at that time, in that day, this is the crew that you would have wanted to stand with. These were Jesus' people. Okay, now there was two possible responses that a Christian pastor like Dietrich could have had in this time. One was to compromise, leave the confessing church behind, and throw his support behind the movement of Hitler. Another response was to flee, to run away, to get out of there, to leave Germany and to go to safer shores somewhere like in England or in these United States. Don't forget that members of the confessing church were in danger of arrest and imprisonment and execution, all of it. And so brilliant leaders like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who could go overseas and get permission to teach at a seminary, were very often encouraged to do that. Hey, Dietrich, you you need to leave right now. This is too dangerous. We need you alive. Go to England. Go to America. And so that's what he did. He came to America to teach at Union Theological Seminary. I need you to picture this. Here is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he is with Jesus. And here is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's people. He is in Chicago, I think that is. And they are in Germany. Do you feel this distance? This is the man who wrote the book Life Together. This is the man who, maybe more clearly than any theologian in the 1900s, knew what community of God meant. This is very hard for him. And some afternoon, he just snapped. Something inside of him said, I am too far from Jesus' people. This isn't right. I can't be who Jesus has called me to be, separated from the people that Jesus has called me to. I have to identify not only with Jesus at Union Theological Seminary, I have to identify with his people. Solidarity with them is essential to my story. I have to go home. I have to go home. He wrote to a friend, and this is what he said. I have made a mistake in coming to America. I have to live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany, with them. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I don't share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christianity may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying Christianity in Germany. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice 
in America in security. Do you feel that? Dietrich was personally, individually committed to Jesus. His hope and his life and his joy were bound up in Christ and his gospel. But that was not enough by itself. He knew that this vertical relationship necessitated, implied, meant that his life also be bound up with Jesus' people. He could not stay far from them. He had to identify with them. That conviction is at the center of the gospel. It's at the center of what it means to belong to Jesus. And it's at the center of our text today. And I'm preaching it because I need it to be at the center of your story, your life, your self-understanding. And so as I preach to you this morning, I need you asking yourself this question. Am I living safely and selfishly and securely on the margins of Christian community? Or does my life show solidarity with Jesus' people, whatever the cost to me? All right, keep that in mind. Let me pray for you. Father, this is astounding that you have spoken to us by your word, that in every time, in every language, in every tribe, in cities across the planet, there's remnants of people who love you and want to know what it means to follow you and do it well. So I pray that you would be gracious to us together today and that you would light up Greater Boston, by the way, our church and other churches live in community together. Would you hear my prayer for that and be gracious and good to us and answer, I pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in the book of Esther. I'll be in chapter 4 to begin, but let me start with this. In the book of Esther, there is only one character who has two names. Ahasuerus is Ahasuerus, and that's it. Mordecai is Mordecai, that's it. Haman is Haman, that's it. All them other crazy Persian names, you only read them once, one name, except for Esther. When Esther is introduced to us, we are told that Esther has two names. And I don't mean a real name and then a nickname. You know how nicknames work? You've got your real name, and then you've got this second name that fits like a glove with who you are. It's descriptive. Roger Clemens threw baseballs really fast, really fast once he got to his 40s. It was amazing. And so we called him the Rocket. He had two names, but those two names dovetailed. They fit each other. That is not what's going on with Esther's two names. Esther has a Hebrew name, Hadassah. And then Esther has a Persian name, Esther. Those two names represent entirely different realities. So Esther is presented to us as a girl who is living in two worlds. Her two names are supposed to get us thinking that at least one of the plot lines in this book is an identity crisis, an identity crisis. The name Hadassah represents the beginning of her life, probably the first 15, 16, 17 years. 
She is embedded in Jewish community. Now, what that would have looked like exactly, we don't know. There was pockets of Jews living in community throughout the Persian Empire. Probably meant that she celebrated the Jewish holidays with her people. It probably meant that she kept the Jewish dietary regulations. It certainly meant that she loved and memorized Jewish scripture. She was connected to the people of God in the past and around her. Hadassah, the Jew. The name Esther represents the next five years or so of her life. She was forcibly removed from contact with the Jewish community. She was thrust into this beauty contest to become the queen of Persia, and miraculously she won, and she stepped into this totally new identity. This was a life of comfort and wealth and fame and security and safety as a Persian. And as you're reading this story, you're supposed to be scratching your head and asking yourself, which is it going to be here, Esther? Jew or Persian? How is this identity thing going to resolve? Well, what happens the first time that her identities collide, Jewish and Persian, what is it that Esther does? She hides her Jewishness. She steps back from the community of her people. She compromises on some of her Jewish commitments. We see that in the beauty contest. She minimizes the importance, the centrality of her Jewish faith. She follows the counsel of Mordecai, who tells her, don't tell anyone about your Hadassah identity. Hide that. And she says, okay. She begins to live this life where she is acting as if these two identities can kind of go along and get along. I can have them both. I will be Jewish in my heart and in my mind and in my private devotional life all by myself, but I will be Persian formally and publicly. That will be my community. For a little while, she pulls this off. She is installed as the queen, and years go by, and no one knows about Hadassah. No one knows that this girl is Jewish. And here's what happens in Esther's life. It's like Dietrich getting on a plane to Chicago. You see that right there? Five years go by, and Esther is separated from having any solidarity with the people of God. The text helps us to see this. In chapter 4, the doom of the people is announced. Hear this with me. It says, In every province where the king's genocidal command and his death sentence decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's young women came and told her that Mordecai was mourning too, Esther sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. But he wouldn't accept them. And so Esther called for one of the king's eunuchs that had been appointed to attend her, 
And she told him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Anybody get depressed the first time you read that text of Scripture? Do do you feel what has happened here with our girl Esther? She has become completely isolated from God's people, from her people. She's become so isolated, she doesn't even know what's going on. You guys, every Jew in the land of Persia is doing what right now? Weeping and mourning and lamenting. And Esther is comfortably painting her nails in the palace. The genocide of her people has been announced and she tries to cheer Mordecai up by sending him a new outfit from Old Navy. Put a smile on, Mordecai. Esther has become emotionally, spiritually, relationally separated from her people. Okay, this happens all the time in life, right? Have you ever been in a relationship like that? Once upon a time, it's wicked, tight, and then not so much after all. For many of us, this is our college experience. When I was in college, I was like this with the guys who lived in my dorm, tight. We were together every day, classes, intramurals, meals, helping each other change our oil, which never went well. Whatever it was, we were doing it together. My identity was tied very tightly to those guys. Dunamis was the name of our wing. It's a Greek word, Christian college, don't ask. But there was great solidarity right there. But then what happens when you turn 21 and a half, 22 and a half? Life happens, and work happens, and marriage happens, and children happen. And what happens? This community that was oh so tight begins to do this, and you lose touch. You get to this point where you don't even know where your friends live anymore. And if you're a sinner like me who... who, can't be trusted on Facebook, you really don't know what's going on with anyone at all. People that you had been so tight to. You talk to them, and I'm still a phone guy, and they go, Cruz, you got four kids? What? I thought you just had the two boys. And what do you realize in that conversation? I kind of look down at my phone. You hold it like this now. And I realize that the communal identity that we once had is really gone now. Their happiness and their joy and their life is not wrapped up in mine anymore at all. How could you not know who Julia and Callie are? They've been everything to me for the last eight years. Here's why. Separation. Now, this is going to sound intense, but this gets to the point where one of us could die and the other person could just go on with their lives. There's no connection. Okay, now that happens all the time in life. But that's not how the gospel life is supposed to work. That is not the way it's supposed to be with those who have Jesus as Lord. And that is certainly not the way it was supposed to happen with Esther. And so as you read this story, you have that intense feeling. You ask yourself, 
is this really where Esther has landed? So far from the people of God that she wouldn't even know about their troubles? So far that she might think, hey, I'm Persian now, living in the palace. If the Jews all die, I'll be fine. How is this identity crisis going to resolve? Well, Mordecai writes back to Esther. They're writing to each other because he can't have contact with her. And he's very, very helpful in what he says to her. He writes back to her and he says, Esther, wake up. Here's what's going on. And he tells her about the doom that her people are facing. And then, like a good stepfather, he was a stepfather to her. He says this, Esther, listen to me because you may have forgotten. There is no life for you apart from the people of God. There is no you over here and them over here. You, you belong to the same God that they do, the same covenant. You're tied to what happens with them. This is how he says it. This is the text of Scripture. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you will perish. Do you feel that? In other words, Esther, this crisis is about you and your identity. Your only hope is to identify with God's people. You need to bind yourself to them to survive. Now, that's not usually the way that we read this story or this text, and that's okay. There is a sense in which the people of God needed Esther to mediate for them if they were going to be saved, and we'll hit on that theme throughout as it typifies Christ. But that's not this sermon. That's not this text. Mordecai is not saying, Esther, the people's only hope is if you identify with them. He's saying something very different. He's saying, Esther, your only hope is that you stand with the people of God. God's blessing is on his people, and if you stand apart from them, you will not receive it. Don't remove yourself from God's people. Doing so is to remove yourself from God's grace. In other words, Esther, you need to lean back into being Hadassah again. You need to return not only to God, but to his people. What's Esther going to do? Beautifully, Esther hears this, and she believes it, and she responds so well. And this genocide crisis creates room for her to resolve her identity crisis. First in the text, we see Esther kind of make her decision. Remember how Dietrich Bonhoeffer woke up one day and said, no, I'm in the wrong place. I'm going home to be with my people. Esther reads this letter from Mordecai, and she makes her decision. No more pretending that I'm Persian, that I have any life outside of the life of the people of God. She calls for fasting and prayer and in doing so, she is showing her solidarity with her people. These are the words of Scripture. Then Esther 
told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, don't eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my young women will fast as you do. Oh, I love that scene. I love it. Can you feel the movement of Esther toward her people for the first time in the book? This is the first time she ever tells her friends, her her young women who attended her, hey, sit down, we have to talk. Here's the deal. I am Jewish. My name is Hadassah. My people are in trouble. And that means I am in trouble. And we're all going to pray this thing through together. It's no more I. It's them and me. It's we. And then a few days later comes the climax of the story and Esther's moment of truth. This is so intense. You need to see this. Esther risks everything. Everything. Esther is willing to give up everything to identify with the people of God. Her fortune, her comfort, her ease, her very life, literally. She puts it on on the table, whatever the cost, to be one with her people. She's invited the king and Haman, who is the villain in the story and had talked the king into issuing this death sentence to a feast. And the king says to his wife, who he loves, anything you ask me for, up to half of my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And this is how he phrases it. He says to her, what is your wish and what is your request? He's making one offer to her, but he's using two different sentences to say it. What is your wish? What is your request? Esther's going to give him one answer. And whatever answer that is, is at the center of her heart. And here's what she says. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. Okay, literarily, this is so beautiful. He has asked her, what is your wish? What is your request? He's tied those two things together. And how does Esther answer him? Watch what she does. She says, my wish is my life. My request is my people. You see what she did there? She identified herself with her people. My life and my people's life, they're not separate things. They're one thing. I have no life apart from my people's life. The best commentary quote I read this week getting ready to lead you guys was this. Esther is saying that her life and the life of her people are one and the same. Her destiny is to be one with her people. This is when I don't throw the commentary out the window, but I hug it and kiss it and circle it and highlight it. Because that's it right there. And then she says it like this. We have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Do you hear it again in there? There's an identity change here for Esther. It's no longer I and me. 
It's I and my people. It's we. It's us. One way that we know that Esther is legit, that she is a daughter of God, that she is a wonderful hero of our faith, is that she did not think of herself as independent from God's people. She didn't. She was willing to identify with God's people at great cost and great peril to herself. Okay, that communal self-understanding has always been at the heart of every true Christian who belongs to Jesus, always. It's always been true of the people of God. This has always been a we-together endeavor. They matter to me because I am tied to them. I could preach until like Tuesday afternoon just walking through the Bible with you and showing you how individual identity is never separated from communal identity. Just read the book of Acts and it'll knock you over. People selling houses to make sure that everybody was provided for. Luke says that they were of one heart and one soul. No one was in need. They had everything in common. They lived and died together. Perhaps nowhere is this more succinctly stated in what Dan read to begin the service today. Jesus' apostle Paul is writing to a community like you. It was a church that he had planted. He had written them a letter before, and he had to get all up in their face because of all this ridiculous sinfulness that was going on. And you know that when someone rebukes and corrects you, even if it's love, what happens right away? My right fist right there gets a little tight because I'm ready to throw something back. There's a little bit of interpersonal conflict between pastor and people in his correction of them. And he knows it and he feels it. And in his second letter that he writes to them, he is pleading with them to identify themselves with him. See, what could happen is this right here. All right, Pastor Paul still has Jesus and we still have Jesus, but us and Pastor Paul, we're not tight anymore. We're going to do this Jesus thing separated from each other. Paul knew that that was impossible. And so in his next letter to this community, this is what he writes. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I'm not saying this to condemn you. As I said before, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's Bible. That's not Matt Cruz exaggerating. That's Bible. Christians die together and live together. They are in each other's hearts call that gospel-centered, gospel-driven, gospel-informed solidarity right there. We live together, we die together. Hey, who does that sound like? Sounds like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who else does that sound like? It sounds like Esther, doesn't it? Who else does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. All of this stuff is rooted in the gospel. It always is, right? That's where our life is. The doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus 
takes on flesh to identify with the people who are in desperate need of him identifying with them. He dies in their place. He lives so that they may live. He becomes the head of a body that is one. Again, read through the New Testament and you see we together are in Christ, Christ in us. There is no separation. Solidarity in community with the saints is the call of the gospel for us. So let me ask you like this. Which Esther are you? Which Esther are you? Are you chapter 4 Esther that, that I started this sermon out with you? Is that who you are? Comfortably removed from any kind of true solidarity with Jesus' people. So occupied with your own life that you don't really have any time or space or interest in Christian community. Safely living at arm's distance from Jesus' people because you know that it's going to cost you something, right? It's going to cost you relational energy. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you discomfort as you have to come in last for the good of others. Do you barely give to the work of this church existing for the good of the person next to you? Do do you hesitate to serve, to teach our kids, to be in gospel community, to be known by the person who is next to you? Do you think, I've got Jesus, and that's what matters. Jesus is people, whatever. I know how strong the temptation is on you to live that way. I get it. You are American Bostonians, right? No culture has ever lived with such independence, has ever set individual autonomy at such heights. You are built to live your life marginally committed to the people of God. It's how you're wired. You are built to think My life is over here. My thing is over here. And my church, family, community thing is somewhere over there. And we certainly don't rise and fall together. I would be fine with or without them. Is that you? Is that you? Or are you chapter 7, Esther, resolved to see your identity wrapped up in the identity of the brothers and the sisters and the saints that Jesus has given to you. My joy rises when Joan's joy rises. My tears flow when Will's tears flow. My feet dance, very awkward and like poorly, but they dance when, who can dance in this joint? Maquis dances. I'm sure he can shake it a little bit. I am tied tightly to my brother, my sister, my community. We rise and we fall together. That's where gospel life resides. Do you know the eternity that is waiting for you? It is in a new heaven and a new earth with the people of God. That's your future. You need to back that up and live that way 
in your present. I want that so bad for you. I want you to get to a place where you can say with full conviction, I totally get why Esther had to go risk her life and stand before that king rather than live separated from the people of God. I get it. I totally get what my brother Dietrich Bonhoeffer was feeling that night in Chicago when he said, I have to go back and be with my people. Do you know what it cost this man? He arrived back in Germany at the wrong time and was very quickly arrested and imprisoned and marched out into a freezing cold courtyard and stripped naked and hung with a very thin wire. And he died. But he had no regret, no regrets because he died where? He died in Germany. He died beside some of his brother pastors. He died with his people. That man understood the gospel. He understood that his life was hidden in Christ and that Christ has called him to be united to a people and he was going to be with them for better or for worse. I want that for you. I want you to say, I get why Pastor Matt is so intense about me being a member of the body of Christ at Seven Mile Road. I get it. I get why it's so important that I give and I love and I serve and I teach our kids. When you do those things, who are you thinking of? If this is your life, you're doing it for yourself, for what you can benefit from it. If this is your life, you're doing these things because you have seen the glory of identifying with the people of God. I so long for you to get there. I so long for you to give thousands and thousands of dollars to the work of this church and when you give to be thinking, I'm doing this because I love Doug and Tracy and they need a fabulous church where they're being discipled. And I love John and I love Joan and I love Skylar and I am tied to them and this church needs to thrive because that it thrives, they thrive, I thrive, we thrive. If we get there, this would be a totally different joint. This would be a totally different 10, 20 years that we have together. We would begin to finally live like the people of God. Is that you? Jesus has bound himself to me in the gospel. Whoa. And not only that, in doing that, Jesus has bound me to his people. Whatever the cost to me, I'm in it with them. Let's pray that through. Father, thank you for Esther. Thank you for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you. Left to ourselves, we would actually think that our highest joy is by ourselves calling all the shots for our own lives, catering to our own comforts, living for just us. But in the gospel, in the incarnation, in the death and the resurrection of your son, you have shown us that you're doing something way beyond just us, that you have a people who are yours, men and women, boys and girls, brothers and sisters. Jesus, help us see how you are for them, 
And so we live only if we are engrafted in with them. I pray that you would do an amazing work in greater Boston through the solidarity of Seven Mile Road, through the unity, through the love that we have for each other, that we would say, if I live, I only live together. If I die, I die together with those that Jesus has given to me. Father, it is very unlikely that there will be moments of truth that will cost us of our lives. We get that. But I pray that you would begin right now to give new habits of community to the souls in this church. New motivations and generosity in giving and loving and serving and forgiving and caring. That we would see that our lives are wrapped up not just with Jesus, but with each other. If you don't come by your spirit and do this, we won't get there, but I ask you to come and to do it for your glory, for our joy. Hear the prayer of all of us together that I get to pray. Amen. Amen.